Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is October 15th, 2015. And before introducing today's guest, I want to mention that over at our website, econtalk.org, Amy Willis of the Library of Economics and Liberty, which is our host, she has started posting what we call extras uh, essentially, they're blog posts with provocative questions to encourage follow-up conversation and learning related to each episode. A lot of you asked for that in our surveys, so I encourage you to check those out and follow me on Twitter at EconTalker, E-C-O-N-T-A-L-K-E-R, EconTalker, to find out more, and I usually mention when they get posted. Now for today's guest. He is Cesar Hidalgo. He is director of the Macro Connections Group at the MIT Media Lab, and he's an associate professor of media arts and sciences at MIT, and the author of Why Information Grows, the Evolution of Order from Atoms to to Economies. Cesar, welcome to EconTalk. It's my pleasure to be here. So let's start with the basics. Uh, You mean something very specific by information uh, that's not necessarily the everyday use of the word. So why don't you explain what information is to you? Yeah, so when people think about the word information, usually they think about messages and they think sometimes even about the meaning of those messages. So one of the things that I do in my book is in the beginning, I'm very clear about what I mean by information, which is not messages, it's not the meaning of the messages, but it's the physical order that we use to transmit messages, but also to transmit the practical uses of knowledge and know-how in products. So I take a very um, general definition of information that involves all forms of physical order, where that order is embodied in a brand new car, in a strand of DNA, or in a sequence of words in a book. And you're, you're a physicist originally by training, yep. and you embed this conversation uh, and analysis of information in a, in a physical context, and you start with entropy, which is not going to be our main uh, focus, but it, I found it fascinating. It's always intrigued me. Entropy is is supposed to be increasing in the universe, and yet in the a- and so in the aftermath of the Big Bang and everything's very hot, then things start to get cold, and you'd think things would kind of die out, and we just have an empty universe with nothing in it. But as you point out, and as scientists have wondered about for a while, the Earth is a pocket, a small corner of the universe where it appears we have in, at times we reverse entropy. So talk about the physics of that for a minute and how the best way to understand how that reversal happens. Yeah, so uh, to understand information from a physical perspective, one thing that is very important and that has been emphasized by a lot of scientists before me is the fact that information always needs to be physically embodied. Okay. So uh, when you think about information from a physical perspective, you're thinking about the different states or configurations that a particle or a molecule can take. For instance, you know, if you would talk to a very modern uh, quantum physicist, when he would be describing or she would be describing a collision, a collision between a couple of particles, it would not be so much about like the exchange of momentum on energy, but the exchange of information that is embodied in those states, okay? And so the first thing that we need to understand there is that information is always physically embodied. Now, 
The thing is, there are many different ways in which information can be physically embodied because, you know, physics actually has like a, a great diversity of, of ways in which you can uh, store order. Uh, some of the ways in which uh, sometimes that um, sequences or that type of order is, is embodied is in thermal states. You know, uh, these are just like random fluctuations that exist in any body that is at non-zero temperature. And the problem of those thermal states, you know, that even though there are many, you know, actually most of these states are, are just, you know, based on these fluctuations, um, is that you cannot then extract that information. You cannot use it for anything useful, you know, because in, in some way, uh, these are states in which everything has already averaged out. So the information that we have in the universe that is useful for us is the information that is not necessarily embodied just on these thermal states, but is the information that is embodied on things that are highly ordered, that are actually the opposite of that, which would be like the information that is embodied on a strand of DNA or on a molecule of sugar, which is something that is not random and that eventually we can make use of. So the universe has a natural tendency to take systems that are highly organized and eventually average them out and put them in a state in which, you know, um, most configurations are equally likely and there's not that much order. You give the example. Uh, you give the example in the book of you put um, uh, some some dye into a liquid. It starts off in one little place. It starts making little patterns, and then eventually it disperses throughout the liquid and in that average level that's not very interesting. Exactly. So putting milk in coffee is another example that I think most listeners would be familiar with. <laughs> when you put milk in coffee, at the beginning you have like a beautiful dollop, you have a beautiful swirl, but after a while it's just a hazy cloud in which you know, the, the particles of milk are, are mixed with the particles of, you know, coffee and water, and, and there's no structure anymore. So the thing is, how do we get to live in a planet in which there's so much structure if the universe has a tendency to make a structure disappear? And in the beginning of the book, I explained the tricks that the universe has to allow information to exist and to grow despite this tendency uh, that the universe has to be hostile to order. And the tricks are the existence of uh, systems in which you have uh, flows of energy. So the, this is the work of Ila Prigozhin that help us understand that information is not free and order is not free. You need to spend energy to produce it. There's a cost. You know, the other um, ingredient that you need is you need to have ways of saving information. And that's what solids are good for. The DNA in your body does not need to uh, recreate the information that it has embodied in it all the time because it's very stable to thermal fluctuations, so it can store information for long periods of time. And finally, these two things combine uh, to generate systems like biological cells or humans or societies that embody the capacity to compute. That is that they can use energy to actually beget new information out of old information by recombining it, by copying it, by duplicating it, and so forth. And in the case of the Earth, the energy, the ongoing energy from the sun is is a key part of that story. And of course, for our daily lives, it's our, um, uh, as you call it at one point, it's our software that we have in our bodies, which is our brain, which allows us to increase order, even though the natural tendency is is chaos or disorder. So in some way, yeah, you can think that a lot of what the book is about is about like the, the, the struggle between developing computational systems that are able to create information, whether these are cells, humans, or economies, you know, and how these computational systems exploit energy to create sequences of information that they can use in the future. And this could be, you know, proteins that they use in the operation of a cell. 
They could be text that we use to communicate among humans. They could be objects like the telephone that I'm using to communicate with you nowadays. And these objects are, are solid, they're, they're, they're stable to thermal fluctuations, and therefore we can use them to communicate and to help this collective computer keep on functioning uh, because you know we don't need to spend energy to keep on creating them all the time. So we have a, like, in, in a more economic language, like a savings rate that is allowed by the universe by existing at a range of temperatures in which we can create objects that are stable to thermal fluctuations. So before we get into the, some of the more economic applications of this, I just want to read a, a short paragraph that I, that I just enjoyed a great deal. Uh, and if you want to comment on it, you can. I'm not quite sure. Uh, I don't remember why, why you told the story, but it's such a nice story, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it. It's about the birth of your wife, um, the birth of your daughter, when your wife uh, gave birth to your daughter, uh, Iris, and okay. your wife is Anna. So here's, sorry about all that mess up. Here's the quote. It took only 26 minutes for Anna to push Iris into the hands of the nervous but focused medical student who received her. 26 minutes sounds like a short time for delivery, and it is. And I will argue that the trip that Iris made that night was not a 26-minute trip down a few inches of birth canal, but a 100,000-year journey from a distant past to an alien future. In 26 minutes, Iris traveled from the ancientness of her mother's womb to the modernity of 21st century society. Birth is, in essence, time travel. Uh, why did you mention that? Well, I don't remember, actually. Do you remember? I'm sorry to, to surprise you with this. No, I, I, absolutely, because that, that in, in some ways, the opening story of the book, and it helps illustrate one of the main points of the book, which is, when we think about the development of our society or our economy, in some way, what we're looking at is the development of changes in the way in which we have ordered a fixed set of atoms that we have in the world. The difference between the civilization that we have now and the civilization that existed in our planet 100,000 years ago is not in the atoms that exist in our planet because those are conserved. You know, people 100,000 years ago also had access to energy. If you think about it, the sun was obviously there, you know, and there were fossil fuels that they didn't know how to exploit, but they were available as well, you know. So what has actually changed, you know, in these 100,000 years is the way in which you have arranged those atoms to create a world that allows us to live at a much higher standard of living. But what's interesting about the way that we arrange atoms, unlike other species, is that we arrange atoms by first figuring out configurations of atoms that are useful through mental processes and then embodying that imagination into objects. So, for instance, if you think of a world that is populated only by ants, ants have a very fixed vocabulary that they can use to communicate that is based on pheromones and that is encoded in their genes. But we have a vocabulary that is ever-expanding because we're able to crystallize imagination that comes of our brains. So when my daughter was born that day, what happened is that she encountered a world in which the light that was filling up that room that night was coming from fluorescent and incandescent light bulbs that were imagined by people before they were constructed. You know, the music that filled up the room was music that was being played by a tablet computer that was actually running an algorithm that would recommend songs for us and would play them for us. So she was born in a world that was very different from the one in which our species evolved in big part because uh, our species what has done and what the economy in my interpretation is, is this ability to transform information into reality. So this story I think helps uh, illustrate powerfully the idea that like what makes our society prosperous 
you know, is not financial measures that are, I would say, more short-term interpretation of what the economy is, but, you know, the ability that we have had as a species to create imaginary objects uh, in tangible forms that are useful and that allow us to access capacities that would be not otherwise uh, possible to access without this ability to embody imagination into, you know, tangible objects. And you talk about this in different ways, and it made me think about it as well, which is that it's not just that we have all these clever ways to use information. We preserve them. And we, so you emphasize a lot our connections to each other at a point in time, but I, I kept thinking about it, and as you talk about it now, I think about our ability to stand on the shoulders of giants. People have come before us We've thought of things, and we don't lose those. That's really what's extraordinary. You talk about it some, but I think that part of the human condition is we don't appreciate it. We obviously understand that there are many things in our lives that we enjoy that we don't understand, uh, that we don't know how they work. But the idea that insight and what you called crystallized information, the, the, the creativity of past human beings can still be enjoyed by us today is really a rather remarkable thing. Absolutely. So I'm, I'm probably um, guessing here, but you might have heard of the work of Robert Boyd, the cultural anthropologist. No. no? Uh, he actually has a, a bunch of like great books. You might consider inviting him to your program. And uh, some of these books are called Not by Genes Alone. And, and what he talks a lot about is this idea of cumulative culture, you know, which is the fact that uh, as a species, one of the things that makes us successful is that we're able to accumulate volumes of knowledge and information that are much larger than any individual could by distributing that accumulation in a society and by being able to perform that accumulation of knowledge and information through generations. So one story that he sometimes used to motivate that idea is he makes the observation that when people from uh, England tried to cross you know, the Arctic and died, you know, there were people that were relatively sophisticated, you know, uh, for their time. There were like 19th century uh, explorers, you know, that, that were coming out from the most developed country in the world, but they died in an environment in which people that were quote unquote more primitive, like the Inuits, were able to survive for thousands of years. And the question is why? And, and Boyd's answer to that is that, well, the Inuits had an enormous amount of knowledge of how to survive in such environment, okay? Uh, and that knowledge had been accumulating over many generations. It was very hard to codify. And therefore, you know, the Englishmen that tried to cross, you know, the Arctic, you know, in, in that expedition uh, were unsuccessful at doing so because they didn't know how to do it. And it would have been hard for them to acquire the knowledge of how to do that simply, you know, because that knowledge is cumulative. It develops over a large amount of generations and it's accumulated at a collective level which make it uh, very hard to transfer, but at the same time, very crucial for you to be able to survive in that environment or in our modern world to create, you know, things that are relatively complex. The other thought I had is that we are able to to do that relatively easily, partly because we can read books, obviously, which, but as as your example points out, the Inuit couldn't, they didn't write books. If they had, Reading them probably would have helped the English. <laughs> that wasn't exactly the problem because a lot of it was, as you describe in your book, tacit knowledge. It wasn't necessarily yeah. things you can write down. It's things you, you come to, to, I don't know, embody and feel and understand without being able to totally explain them. 
some of that comes from imitation. Some of it comes from trial and error. It comes from a lot of different, a lot of different ways. But, but I suspect a lot of the ways that we uh, are able to access the information of the past is through the technology and the machines of the past that, that we take and just improve. We, we don't think of it as, as part of our inheritance, but of course it is. So cars get better and better. Nobody has to figure out from scratch how to make a car because it's not like the last generation ends and we say, tell us what you learned about cars so we can make one. It just It's this ongoing overlapping process that, that the knowledge gets preserved through communication as well as the, the devices that are already there. Absolutely. So knowledge is, is, is one of those words that in, in some way can only be properly understood if you if you make some distinctions. And one distinction that is very important, as you mentioned, is the one between tacit and explicit knowledge. Tacit knowledge is the one that Michael Jordan had when he was playing, you know, basketball in the 1990s. And I think here we could both agree that we could have talked with Michael Jordan for days, hours, months or years, and we would have never been able to develop his capacity to put a ball inside a hoop. Yeah, it's okay? easy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, Watch. he can tell you, no, you just like shoot it, you, you know, in this angle, that's how you stand. But, <laughs> but, but at the same time, you know, you have that tacit knowledge that is embodied in individuals, and sometimes there's tacit knowledge that is embodied in teams. Sports is a great example of that because sometimes you see teams in which the players might individually not be that great, but they, they play collectively in such a coordinated way that they know exactly when another player is walking behind them so they can give them the pass or they can, you know, fool uh, the defensive maneuvers of, of the adversary team that uh, they are embodying knowledge, you know, at a collective level. And that is very much true in firms. Uh, even I see it in my group at MIT or in my startup in which we develop these complex uh, software projects that are these large data visualization engines. And by now we have a, a relatively well-defined division of knowledge in which I know that there's some guys that know about backend, some guys that know about frontend, some guys that know about design, and that it would be very hard for me to reaccumulate that knowledge or even to, to transfer that knowledge to other people without adding them slowly to the group, which is the only way in which I'm able to expand the number of people that have that capacity, uh, simply because there's tacit knowledge that is also embodied in groups of people. And firms are a great way for society to embody that tacit knowledge because they're made of overlapping generations in which people pass on some practices that can be codified, but many of which that cannot be codified. So in, in the 90s, I think it was the 90s, there was a big fad, at least I think it was a fad in, in management education about trying to utilize the knowledge that was in a firm that was greater than the knowledge of any individual person in it or to think about how to maintain the knowledge when people, when there was turnover. So if you were to leave the lab, you have lots of yeah. knowledge, not just of your own insights and expertise. You have a huge amount of tacit knowledge about the capabilities of the people in the lab, their strengths, their weaknesses. That also really can't be written down and can't really be preserved. It's, I don't think, I think it's unique to the, to the team and its, and its constituents at any one time. Exactly. So, and that's a little bit of like the, of the theme of the book, which is, well, how do we get to accumulate these vast amounts of knowledge? And the idea is that we are able to accumulate this vast amount of knowledge, you know, uh, because uh, we have tricks that allow us to transcend our finite capacity to do that as units. So if you think about the world, you know, uh, uh, three billion years ago, okay, which is kind of like a time scale that is a little bit longer than the one that economists usually like to think about, but, you know, there was Just a planet a here and it was... <laughs> 
Exactly. And it was populated by, you know, uh, mostly unicellular organisms. And at, at that time, you know, the type of things that those unicellular organisms could achieve were relatively primitive for today's standards. Okay? Uh, and the thing is that those unicellular organisms had a finite capacity to compute because any system that is finite in amount of matter and energy that, that they're able to embody, you know, is going to be finite in its capacity to compute too. You know, there are like actually physical laws that tell you, given uh, the amount of matter and the amount of energy available to a system, how much computation that system can complete. But that finiteness was not the end of the growth of order or information in our planet. At some point, those unicellular organisms figured out how to become multicellular, and those multicellular organisms were able to accumulate amounts of knowledge that were much larger than the one of the unicellular organisms could ever achieve. By the same token, as, uh, as, as humans, we are also finite in our capacity to accumulate knowledge and know-how. Actually, each one of us knows very few things, and, and when you talk to a person that comes from a different field, it's very easy to find uh, areas of um, knowledge that, that you might know and the other person don't, and vice versa. You know? We, we know very few things. And the way that we transcend our finite capacity to accumulate knowledge is by accumulating the knowledge collectively. So the fact that knowledge has to be embodied in units that are of finite capacity is what allows us to accumulate knowledge and know-how and eventually to get information, but it's also what makes it difficult because it transformed the problem of knowledge accumulation to a problem of network creation. If you're not able to sustain the networks that allow you to accumulate knowledge, you are going to eventually be um, stuck with a ceiling. You know, there's at some point that you're not going to be able to accumulate any more information simply because, you know, you have reached the capacity of the units. Yeah, the, um, why don't you talk before we go on about the distinction between knowledge and know-how, which you, you mentioned in passing. Yeah. So knowledge and know-how is the language that I use to um, describe more succinctly the difference between explicit knowledge and tacit knowledge. So I use the word knowledge to refer to the knowledge that can be codified, the one that can be expressed in books or the one that we can talk about. Uh, know-how is the shorthand that I use to talk about tacit knowledge, which is the knowledge that is embodied you know, on an expert violinist that uh, might be able to tell you something about how to play the violin, but when push comes to shove, you know, that's a type of knowledge that can only be accumulated by practicing uh, in the right context, you know, the activity that, that, that you want to do. You know, and many of that knowledge sometimes cannot be codified at all. And, and there are a lot of simple examples of that. For instance, you know how to see, but you probably don't know how you see, you know, because if you knew how you see, you should be able to create like some very sophisticated computer vision algorithms that would match you know, what humans are able to do when processing uh, visual input. So uh, the words knowledge and know-how, I use them to refer to tacit knowledge and to explicit knowledge. Know-how being the definition of uh, tacit knowledge and knowledge being the one that I use for explicit knowledge. So let's take the next leap. As you say, a lot of uh, what we need to do then as human beings, we need, we need to work with, we need to cooperate, we need to work with other people, we need to leverage not just the information of others, not just the knowledge of others, not just the know-how of others, but we need to interact with that. It's very complicated, obviously, and your book spends a lot of time trying to, to get at that. So what are the keys, as you see them, in making those networks possible? Yeah. So 
uh, in, in that context, what I like about thinking of societies and economies in terms of computation is that by understanding that computation needs to be embodied in networks, we can start quickly incorporating ideas of institutions into our understanding of economies in a very natural way. Because at the end of the day, institutions help us shape the ability that we have to connect with one another. One institution, for instance, that people in the social capital literature have focused a lot on is the idea of trust. Okay? In a society in which you would have high levels of trust uh, and people would not be very skeptical about one another and they wouldn't think that they're going to very easily betray them, uh, they're going to be able to have a larger number of interactions because each one of these interactions has a lower cost and this is going to allow them to create larger networks that can accumulate a larger computational capacity. In a society that the levels of trust are relatively low, uh, you are going to have a society in which people can have very few links because each link is very expensive and consequently they're going to be able to accumulate a relatively small computational capacity. So trust is one of these institutions, but obviously there are many others. You know, there are changes in uh, you know, sometimes transportation and communication technologies that change the cost of interactions. You know, there could be also some formal institutions, some certain laws, insurance schemes that, that can help us reduce the transaction costs uh, that we have between people or reduce the risks of performing certain types of transactions that also help us catalyze the formation of these networks. So that's, in, in summary, like how the networks would help us incorporate the idea of institutions and how by incorporating institutions into networks, we can explain how societies with different institutions have different computational capacities. We'll get to that in a sec, but I want to I want to challenge something I thought was I didn't see in the book and get your reaction. So you don't make much of a distinction between innovation and production or creation and production. So when I think of a small firm or a large firm, even there's a small number of people. They work together. They interact in all kinds of inexplicable and hard to quantify ways. But a great firm, a really innovative company is is doing exactly what you're talking about. They're people who come to trust one another. They share ideas. They stimulate each other's thinking. And they come up with fabulous products and fabulous ideas. But the production of those products is a different challenge. Of, it also involves networking. So because we don't, we don't specialize, right, typically, there's not vertical integration of, of a product. So a company, as you mentioned, like Apple, will produce its products all over the world. Different pieces come from all kinds of different places. It's not just the know-how, though, that comes from different places or the knowledge. It's also the the physical need to produce those in different places. And you didn't talk about much that, of that about that, or or do you think of that as just part part of the whole process? No. So I I agree that the links that you have with people to uh, invent something or to scale the distribution of something that you have invented already are quite different. You know. The links that you would use to invent something tend to be more intimate. They have to be much stronger. They have to have a high level of trust because people need to actually challenge each other and, and uh, uh, in ways that would allow them to, to do those creative activities. But at some point, you know, uh, when the product that is being made has been figured out, you can scale that through a different type of network in which you might have a lot of repeated type of knowledge and know-how. For instance, you know, you can have like a large... A sales team in which many people more or less know about the same, but you need a large number of them, not because you're accumulating vast amount of knowledge, but simply because you know, are trying to have connections to a larger number of people uh, uh, in the context of a commercial operation. The world's you know, a big place. Time, 
Exactly. You know, or by the same token, when you are manufacturing um, a product that you already have figured out, you know, how to manufacture or, or how it looks like you have already designed it, you know, to scale that manufacturing, you're going to need to include more people that are doing exactly the same as other people you know, in that firm. Um, so I, I do think that there's a strong distinction between the creative links that you use to invent. You know, I like to think of invention as very different from innovation because invention is when you create something new. Innovation is when you improve something that already exists. And then the links that you would use to scale a certain operation, like the ones that you would use to bring manufacturing to scale or to have a big sales effort by having a, a large sales team. I guess the other thought I had is that I'm just I'm sort of challenging the social network part of the of this, at least for the creation of knowledge and creation and know how. It's usually a small group of people who create a new product. They do rely on immense numbers of people who've come before them. But that kind of knowledge that they're using is often passed on in the form of books, in the form of teaching, in the form of going to graduate school or uh, other ways. You don't have to trust those people. They just that knowledge is just you can grab that. The, the really hard part of the people is the knowledge that's created through the, the face-to-face interactions. And that's a relatively small network, it seems to me. Yeah, exactly. It's a relatively small network, but it's a crucial network uh, because it's the one that recombines all of that codified knowledge uh, and then transform it into something new. But at the same time, the capacity of people to have intimate connections is, is quite finite just because of obvious time constraints. If you, if you think about it, how many people you can actually have a meaningful meeting on a, uh, on a given day? You know, maybe six, eight meetings a day and you're super tired at the end of the day. So despite the fact that those networks are relatively small, they eat most of the bandwidth of an entrepreneur. You know, uh, if the entrepreneur is focusing on, on participating on the, on the creative process. So the fact that we can codify knowledge and we can transmit it sometimes through books, sometimes through education, and sometimes through objects, you know, because the guys that I build software with, they don't build the hardware that we use to embody our software, but they access, you know, the knowledge, not, not the knowledge needed to create the, the hardware, but the practical uses of the knowledge that went into create of the hardware through those objects. Uh, so I, I wouldn't see like any contradiction. The fact that the networks are, are small, uh, I, I, I don't see it as, a, as something that, that would in, in some way contradict what we have been talking about before, but rather that the capacity that we have to create, you know, meaningful networks in which we can be creative is, is quite finite, because we have uh, like important constraints that, that come from the amount of time that we have, the speed at which we communicate with one another, you know, and the length that it takes to form a meaningful relationship with another person, which is also something that is not easy. I, I guess I brought it up because I think about I think about Adam Smith and I think about growth uh, from the, you know, the levels that of, say, 1,500, 1,400, 50, 80, 120 years uh, in the common era. There's, there's been a very flat time. And then we had an enormous explosion over the last 200, 250. And a lot of that comes through, I would suggest, non-planned, undesigned cooperation the social trust, some, a, lot of, a lot of that is face-to-face and it's planned. It's a group of people get together in the modern world to do something. But a lot of our cooperation, I suspect, that's important takes place mitigated through the price system that's not intended. It just emerges as, as, as you know, supply chains and other forms. 
Yeah, so I, I think, you know, like, and, and here I'll, I'll, I'll challenge you back, okay? <laughs> if that's Go okay. Ahead. Yeah. So, um, that's yeah, the goal. Because in, in, exactly. In, in some way, you know, I, I understand that it's very attractive to think of a world in which everybody more or less is driven by self interest, left to their own devices. They buy inputs through the price system, they recombine them, and they sell a certain output, you know, that also goes into the market through the price system. And it's, it's, uh, it's attractive, you know, uh, from, I think, a standard economic theory perspective to think of the world that way. But most people, uh, for a fact, they don't work by themselves. So first of all, all of these units that are getting inputs in and they're producing outputs, they tend to already be collaborative. And they, you know, even a bakery might have, you know, a couple of bakers. They might have, you know, someone that is sitting at the register. If you have a larger operation like a car manufacturing plant, you know, they might buy inputs and they might sell, you know, outputs. But internally, you know, those networks need to exist. So on the one hand, the fact that you have a market doesn't preclude that you have other instances in which you need to have a more intimate and a form of collaboration that is not driven by prices. That's a little bit of what motivated Ronald Coase to come up with his theory. You know, in my Couldn't book, do, I talk yeah. about like Coase, yeah, uh, about agree Coase's more. theory of the firm, <laughs> in which, you know, Coase in the 1930s, you know, uh, goes to um, um, a presentation from uh, a professor in the Department of Commerce in LSE, and, and this professor says, well, the normal economic system works itself out. And, and Coase, as he said in his Nobel Prize acceptance speech, uh, thought that that was total bullshit because he saw that in reality, the world was made of a lot of islands of conscious power that were firms, you know, that, that work in some form of, you know, centralized planning, which the price system was not playing such an important role. The price system played a role between firms, but within the firms, there are important hierarchies or, or that important networks that are formed that have to make decisions, not based on the supply and demand that is signaled by price systems, but based on more social mechanisms uh, that, that might involve the, uh, the knowledge that each person has about the capacities of someone else, the way that they will react to other things, you know, and ultimately those units are fundamental because if, if you would destroy each one of the firms and we would go back to an economy in which everybody would be... Uh, by themselves, just getting inputs and trying to produce output, I'm pretty sure that our economy would be probably less sophisticated than that in the Mad Max movies, you know, in which people are more or less by themselves in the desert. So, uh, so the price system, I, I agree that it helps reveal information about the supply and demand of things, but, but there's much more to the economy than that. It's not just about making commercial transactions. What makes an economy work at the end is that we figure out things that are worth transacting. And that's a part you know, of the economy that I haven't seen that much explained in their theories in which the things that get produced more or less are assumed to be there because they're either widgets or they're, you know, some sort of object that, that we assume that is there. And the focus has been most on the commercial transactions among those things that exist rather than on the interactions that have to happen among people to bring things into existence. Well, first of all, I think you're, you're right as a general criticism of at least textbook economics. It is one of the stranger, especially the theory of the firm, it is one of the stranger aspects of of the way we teach economics that the biggest decision a firm has to make is how much to produce, which is the last thing in the real world that firms worry about. It's not – in the real yeah. world, firms have to figure out what market they want to be in, whereas in the textbook, they take – the market they're in is given, they take the prices given often – uh, but in the real world, they'd figure out what market they're in, which is going to affect what they can charge. It's going to affect what, what 
how they produce and what they produce. And it's, um, so I totally agree with you, but I think it's a bit of a straw man. I, Adam Smith wrote two books. One's about how we interact with each other. That's the theory of moral sentiments when we're, yep. when we're face to face. The other is the book about markets, which is the wealth of nations. They're both important. Couldn't agree more. And I couldn't agree more that, that Coase, uh, was a challenge to the, at least the textbook version. Although I think he might've used a different word than the one you suggested when he was seeing the, um, the traditional theory. So I totally agree with you. It's the bottom line about a richer approach is very important. But I do think that it's important to think about the role of cooperation that occurs across space uh, and across time that that prices allows. Because we can't love everyone. We can't be face-to-face with everyone. As you say, we have a limited amount of time, we have a limited amount of resources. And it, it seems uh, that prices play a key role in allowing those things to be uh, overcome a little bit. So let's let's move on. No, I I, I would agree. I would agree a hundred percent. And the only thing that I would say is that since that has been said, you know, like Hayek said it, and you know, basically it, it gets regurgitated even nowadays in every comment section of every newspaper, more or less, when people are discussing the economy. Uh, since the role of prices in revealing information about supply and demand had been said, I try to focus on aspects of information in the economy that had not been so much discussed in the literature because I wanted to make a contribution, even if it's a little bit controversial, by bringing something that was a little bit different, which is the figuring out of what eventually you make and, and, and why the things that we make are the essence of what makes our economy prosperous, you know, rather than just the commercial interactions that we have. So yeah. let's move to that. Um... You ask the following, you say, why is our ability to create refrigerators, jet engines, and memory devices concentrated in a few parts of the world? Why do many countries know how to make and export shoes, but only a few know how to make and export helicopters? So in that section of the book, you're trying to explain where we, what we might call, what used to be called comparative advantage, uh, yep. sometimes I think confusingly called competitive advantage, uh, but it's clearly a... a an ongoing key part of our lives, the commercial part of our lives. Uh, what's your answer to those questions? So um, one thing that is a basic observation is that in some way, our ability to produce products have what an ecology would call a geographic range. Yeah? There are certain parts of the world in which that ability exists, and there are other parts of the world in that ability does not exist. Okay? Uh, so from the perspective of the theory that I advance in, in why information grows, you know, what determines the existence of that ability, first and foremost, is the knowledge and know-how that is embodied you know, in the networks of people that reside in a place. And that ultimately uh, is what makes that knowledge very hard to transfer. Because let's say if you take uh, Hollywood and you take all of the knowledge and know-how that is there about producing uh, like blockbuster movies, now, that knowledge obviously is not a story in a single individual like James Cameron or Steven Spielberg, but it's a story like large networks of people that get to collaborate, you know, through markets and through social relationships to create, you know, those, those films. And ultimately, uh, there are very few parts of the world that can imitate that because accumulated that knowledge is very hard because you're going to have to accumulate it in a network because of the simple reason that it's too much knowledge to fit on a relatively small uh, group of individuals. So, um, Going out from like a like a very Ricardian old theory of comparative advantage in which, you know, there would be certain factors that a population is endowed with, you know, here the idea of the factors, which is a more modern uh, way of looking at it, but that is also present in, in, in not only my book, but in other works in economics, 
is that these comparative advantages are much more dynamic because they hinge primarily on the computational capacity of social systems. And when you're looking at different countries or different regions or different cities producing different mix of products, what you are looking indirectly is at the knowledge and know-how that has been accumulated in the networks that populate those countries, cities, and regions. Yeah, well, I, I like your uh, contrast for Cardian view because if you weren't careful, you might think that the reason great movies come out of California is because they have mountains in the distance and lots of pollution. But then, uh, then it would be good, easy to make movies in Santiago, Chile, where exactly. uh, which uh, <laughs> I haven't been there since 1981, but it used to remind me a little bit of L.A. Um, but as you point out, what makes Los Angeles extraordinary is the people, not not the mountains, not the water, not the ocean, not the, those help. They make they make it makes it pleasant for people to live there. But once they're there, there's an incredible um, power to that those those networks, and they're networks of people, not not natural resources. Nothing inherent about the geography. Yeah, and those networks of people are just like the hardware where ability to make things needs to be embodied because all of our knowledge, know-how always needs to be embodied, just like information needs to be physically embodied on DNA or photons or books or brains. You know, knowledge and know-how also needs to be embodied on people and networks of people. And, you know, that's, that's what, you know, LA has, you know, and that's what San Francisco has, you know, in, in the tech sector. That's what Boston has in robotics. That's what New York has in finance and, you know, publishing. So these networks are ultimately, you know, the hardware where we, accumulate our capacity to make things and are both, you know, the enabler of our ability to create things that make our life prosperous, but also the curse of our inability of moving that knowledge and know-how around because the knowledge is trapped in the networks that embody it. And so when you talk about transaction costs, we had a recent episode with Adam Davidson talking about the making of a Hollywood movie. And the thing that, one of the things that struck him was that when you arrived on the set, nobody was bossing anybody around because everybody knew their job. There were 250 people who had done this many times before, and they just knew what had to get done. And what an incredible yeah. advantage that is in terms of, of transaction costs. It's an extraordinary end coordination, an incredible thing. So then the question is, yeah. why is it that some countries uh, excel at this coordination and, and trust and networking and others struggle? And how do they – let's think about – any lessons we might have for development and, and uh, helping increase the standard of living other places. It's obviously that, that they, you can't take a poor country and say, well, why don't you become really good at making movies? That way you'll be rich because those are good paying jobs. And I think a lot of people make that mistake. So, but then the question is, okay, that doesn't work. What might work? So the way that I see uh, economies it's a very historical system, which is a little bit different than the more neoclassical ways of looking at economies that look them as ahistorical systems in which a set of incentives ultimately rules the system and the system finds a configuration that matches those incentives and figures everything out. And the, the way that I see it is that they're very historical systems. So when you see an economy that has a capacity to produce a certain good, it's, it's not that it was developed overnight through like some sort of incentive structure. Uh, it's that it was developed over a long period of time in which people accumulated in the context of a network all of the knowledge and know-how that they needed to, to do that. So the way that I, I see the historical process is, in, is, is a way in which the mix of activities that you do actually helps shape a lot of important e economic institutions. 
No, uh, recently, for instance, we finished a paper that we published as a working paper and we're now uh, sending to submission in which we find a very strong correlation between the mix of products that a country makes and the income inequality that they have. No? And the way that I interpret that relationship is that in some way, um, the economic activities that a society performs has to shape the type of institutions that you have because ultimately people don't learn you know, how to interact with others in sort of like the vacuum of their national identity, but they learn how to interact with others by going to work every day. You know? And if you're going to work every day at a software firm in Silicon Valley where the structure is very flat and people is creative, but, but, the, but you have to basically be very direct you know, when it comes to feedback, you're gonna have a different set of norms and expectations and, and you're gonna subscribe to a different set of institutions that if you're going every day to a mining operation in which the structure is very hierarchical, it's all around safety and it's top down and you know, basically contributing your creative input is something that is not encouraged. So as different countries have had historical different proactive structures, they have, these proactive structures have helped shape the institutions that they have. These institutions obviously have helped shape the mix of products that they're able to make in the future. I think this is obviously a co-evolutionary process. And then eventually those structures can only uh, adapt ever so slowly, you know, and that's what we observe in the data. When we look at the data, we see that if you know the mix of products that a country makes and you try to make a machine learning algorithm or, you know, uh, that would predict what they're going to be making in 20 years from now, uh, the predictions are very accurate because the fruit doesn't fall that far from the tree. Countries that are producing a certain mix of products usually end up being successful in the future at making products that are rather similar and that tells you that there's a lot of things that go into a production of a product that, that uh, can only be accumulated very slowly and they can only be accumulated to things that are relatively similar to the ones that you already know. So let me use an example from the book. A lot of manufacturing of uh, the last 25 years has been done in China for the world. China's the world's factory. Somewhat less yeah. so maybe than it has in the past in terms of as an employer because productivity is growing in the factories there just as they're growing everywhere. And that means fewer people are needed to make any level of, of production. But if you think about why that's true, and you give an answer. So give your answer to the book. Why did China become a centerpiece of, of industrial production? And as a result, to prove their standard of living quite dramatically over the last 25 years. What do you think, how do you relate the concepts of your book to that story? Yeah, so... And the, the, the way that I think about the particular case of, of China, which in some sense has been a little bit puzzling, we can say, yeah. is that uh, on the one hand, when you think about institutions and the role that institutions have on, on shaping the capacity of an economy, I think institutions can act better as a brake than as an accelerator. So if you have a country that has a certain capacity, you can slow it down significantly, or you can even destroy that capacity through bad institutions, but you cannot like jumpstart the development of those capacities very quickly by having good institutions. China is a country that historically has always been, you know, a very a productive, creative, you know, has a rich, you know, history and, and has not been devoid of, of, of inventiveness or the generation of cumulative culture. And it had a very rough transition in the 20th century because uh, China didn't go through a period of renaissance like, like Europe did, but moved more from a medieval society to a modern society over a period of only a, a hundred years, maybe. Uh, but even if you, if you go back to the 1950s, 1960, when China was the poorest country in the world, they had a elite 
you know, that had 80 million people, which is the size of the population of Germany, that was sophisticated enough to have been able to produce atomic bombs and, and, and to produce, you know, like relatively uh, sophisticated things internally. So I think China is a country that in, in some way has had uh, knowledge for a long period of time. It has a lot of capacity. And as the institutions became more inclusive uh, of the um, exploitation of that knowledge and know-how in productive activities, you know, China was a country that was seen to grow. Uh, but other countries are not in the same position because they might have the bad institutions that once they're removed, uh, they're not liberating you know, a population that uh, has accumulated a relatively good capacity to make things. So, for instance, when we look at our data, when we look at the economic complexity index, which is this formula that I created to estimate the computational capacity of a country, even if you go back to the 60s, China was above average in the world, despite being the poorest country in the world. So it's telling you that their ability to make things was never that bad. And, and that's why it would not, it's not that surprising that mainland China has followed the footsteps of you know, other Chinese-based uh, uh, economies like you know, Taiwan, uh, Hong Kong and Singapore. But it's interesting because it, so much of their productivity, it seems, is coming from the crystallized imagination of other people. A factory, an American corporation, an international corporation locating a factory in China versus somewhere else. Once they put it in China, those workers are suddenly very productive. But they're the same workers. They didn't, they didn't literally get smarter. They don't have any more knowledge. They don't have any more know-how. But they're augmented by those machines. So they... I, I, yeah, but, like, if that were true, Ethiopia has 80 million people, Nigeria 100 million, we should be able to do that there as well. So I think the, the thinking that, that in China there, there, there was little capacity... <laughs> I don't think so, yeah. I'm not sure. It's a good question. <laughs> yeah. That's, exactly. my, that's your question so, for me. Why can't we? And my answer would be maybe we could if the governments and institutions of Nigeria and Ethiopia are a little bit more open to trust. Yeah. So the way that I see it is that China is a country that, that has been relatively high in, in capacities, you know, has had like a long tradition of history, arts, sciences, you know, uh, and that is different from that of sub-Saharan Africa or Latin America in that case. You know, and, and the story that people tell in the West is, is that China basically is like copying and imitating everything and, and they get very little credit for, for what they're actually able to achieve. But in my view, and according to the data that I have, which is global data on international trade and production, China is a country that always has been relatively sophisticated in its ability to make things. It has actually increased over the last 40, 50 years, but not that much. It increased from like being, you know, in the 40th number of the rank to being like 20th in the rank, you know, that we have of economic complexity. And what explains for me the growth of China is not low prices, but the relatively low price of high capacity. Okay? Agreed. Because one thing, yeah, exactly, one thing is, is to be able to pay a person, you know, $2,000 a year, you know, and another thing is to be able to pay a person $2,000 a year when that person is able to produce something that is equivalent to what is being produced in a country that people are making $30,000 a year. Yeah, I totally agree. I think, again, I think the challenge is, is that an institution's problem? Is that a people problem? Is it a governance? Is it a private property rule of law problem? It's a lot of things going on there. But the part I totally agree with, you have a great sentence here. You say economic development is not the ability to buy, but the ability to make. And that's got to exactly. be, the, that has to be the starting point. And I think that's very hard for people to accept. Yeah. 
So I just published today a, a story in the Harvard Business Review that makes that point. You know? And do, did you ever hear about Oswald the Lucky Rabbit? No, I missed that. Tell me. <laughs> yeah. So Oswald the Lucky Rabbit in the 1920s was more famous than Mickey Mouse. Okay? So he was a character that was developed by Disney and iWorks. You know, iWorks, uh, Uwe iWorks was kind of like the Steve Wozniak of Disney being the Steve Jobs. Okay? He was actually the guy that made the drawings and, and was a great designer. And they created this Oswald the Lucky Rabbit character that became very popular in the 20s, but was owned by Universal Studios. So when uh, Oswald became you know, very popular, Universal Studios threatened Disney to poach all of their animators if they didn't reduce their production costs. Okay? Why? Because basically Universal executives saw Oswald as what was valuable, you know, what you had right. and what you could sell. <laughs> what did Disney and iWorks did? You know, on the train back from New York, you know, they created a new character. That new character was Mickey Mouse. Okay? And obviously Mickey Mouse left Oswald the Lucky Rabbit on the dust relatively quickly, yeah. you know, because ultimately what was valuable was not, you know, what you had made, but your ability to make it, you know. And time and time again, if you look at the history of, of, of firms and the history of, of, of creative activities, you'll find that the people that are doing creative activities, they get ripped off once, twice, three times, but they always are able to bounce back because you can take property away from someone, but you cannot take that tacit knowledge and know-how away from someone. And as long as that person has an ability to, to create something new, they're going to be able to create something better than what they did before because they're even more experienced and, and, and they learn from, from the bad experiences as well. So I, I completely subscribe to the idea that what is most valuable in economy is your capacity to make. It's not the book that you wrote, but your ability to write books. You know, the film that you made, but your ability to create great movies. Yeah, you can steal my book, but you can't steal my brain, right? Exactly. It's, it's an important um, – it's a, it's a very important point, actually. It sounds like a, like a tautology or, a, or just a cliché, but it's, it seems to me it, it is very important. Um, a lot of your books about the augmenting of human potential uh, with yeah. other people's crystallized information, other people's knowledge. Uh, some people are very afraid of that because of what's coming with artificial intelligence – uh, where do you stand on that? What are your What are your thoughts on what's going to be quote left for people to do after we figure out ways for robots to do everything? Yeah, so uh, I, I think that like some some short term and, and long term views on that that I think is important to discuss. You know, uh, and the question, if if I read it correctly, it, uh, it it requires me to do a little bit of a value judgment. Yeah, mm -hmm. because in in some way it's a question that the answer is going to be good or bad, not yes or no. Yeah? Uh, so in that context, I have a very simple you know, uh, moral axiom that I subscribe to, uh, and I have very few of those. And in this case is that you should never morally judge people from a different time period than yours because you're not prepared to do so. So for instance, you know, I wouldn't want a person from the 1500s to judge my lifestyle because probably they would find it deeply immoral, given the moral codes that they had at that time. I'm an atheist, you know, I had sex before I got married. I did a lot of things that would be morally reprehensible according to uh, the moral standards of the 1500s. By the same token, we might have grandchildren that are going to start plugging, you know, USB ports into their brains directly, you know, to augment themselves in ways that, that might feel scary to us. But personally, I think that uh, that's like Puritans judging you know, like uh, people from San Francisco in the year 2015. You know, we, we, 
we, we cannot make that moral judgment. And, and in, in that case, I, I, I have nothing but trust in that uh, society knows better than I do. You know, and that if that's the way that we're going to go and that's the way that our economy is going to be in the future in which we're going to embody ourselves in electrons rather than in, you know, in like complete carbon atoms like we do right now, um, that's something that I'm, 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 I'm willing to let them decide, you know? Yeah. So you're an optimist, more or less. I think it's going to be okay. I th- I- yeah, I, th- I think that, that eventually we, we figure things out and that doesn't mean that we find problems in between. But I'm a little bit of an optimist. I, 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 I do think, for example, my friend Steven Pinker, he always tweets, you know, that optimism that in some sense comes from like his book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, that society, despite all of its problems, has been getting better. There is less violence now than it used to be. And obviously there's a lot of horrible things that are still happening in the world. But all in all, as we move forward, we have been able to become better at, at many things. We're, for example, now much more environmentally conscious than we were 30, 40 years ago. That's the type of progress. Like Europe has had an extended period of, of peace, you know, despite all of the economic problems that they might have had during the last decade. You know, it has not like the, the idea of a war between France and Germany, you know, which was a recurrent thing or a war between like Spain and England or whatever that was a recurrent thing during history. It's, it's not something that I would say it's, it's in the horizon. So I do think that, that we figure out uh, how to improve our society collectively and that over the long uh, timescales, the um, arc of time bends towards things that are positive. You know, because the things that are negative, they tend to be a little bit more transient, you know, while the ones that are positive tend to grow more slowly, but be long lasting. Yeah, I, I'm not. It's interesting. I'm not sure I'm as uh, optimistic as you are. I'd like to be, though. So I'll, I'll just say that um, it could be true. Uh, what's what is next in, in the research on these kind of topics? We didn't get to talk about we're almost out of time and we didn't get to talk about the empirical side of this. Uh, you do a lot of interesting visualizations and measurement of complexity of economies. And I, I didn't fully understand them and I'm looking forward to reading some more about them and people can read about them in their book or uh, in papers that, that you've written with colleagues. But even, even at the level of, of complexity that you're looking at, there's still a bit of a black box uh, aspect of this, just as there is in, in the standard economic approaches. We don't really have a very good understanding of what's happening below the surface and I suspect that's true of, of your computations as well. Do you want to try to make them more refined? Do you hope to – what do you see as coming next in terms of thinking about these yeah. – these, um, the growth of knowledge and information? Yeah, so I would answer this with like two things that are now in my research agenda. You know, uh, on the one hand, definitely I want to uh, develop better – uh, metrics of economic complexity that on the one hand might be more transparent and better theoretically founded. And on the other hand, they are, you know, empirically even better at predicting, you know, the aspects of the economies that we have found these measures to be good at predicting, which is future economic growth, income inequality, and the mix of products that a country is going to be able to make next. You know, uh, on the other hand, one of the things that uh, I've, uh, one of the areas that I've gone to during the last years is that and I started to think about uh, the world not only in terms of the mix of products that people make, but also in terms of the type of messages and cultural products that we produce. So a couple of years ago, we released a project that is similar to the Observatory of Economic Complexity, but that is called Pantheon, 
that looks at data from more than 11,000 biographies of globally famous people to try to map out how uh, our collective memory has changed over time. Because I've become convinced that if we're going to go beyond, you know, our understanding of economic growth that comes from thinking of measures of consumption like GDP, we have to look at our ability to compute and our ability to accumulate information. And we find like very interesting uh, things already in, in that new data set that focuses on like the information that we have recorded in our history. Uh, for instance, we find that there are important discontinuous transitions in the rate at which we remember people that occur when you have changes in communication technologies. So we have a paper now that we're finishing in which if you look at the period uh, before the printing press, the 2000 years preceding the printing press, and if you look at the number of globally famous biographies that we find in two comprehensive data sets, the, and you divide that by the population of the world at a given point in time, you find that the fraction of people that we remember is a constant number, you know, it's a constant fraction of the global population. So if you look at the number of people that we remember from the year 200 BC, you know, it's the same fraction of the global population that the people that we remember from the year, you know, 1200. Okay, that number didn't change. And when the printers came along, that number jumped and it became constant again for like 300 years until we have, you know, changes in the format of printing. There's the invention of journals, you know, then eventually we have mechanized printing, communication technology, and then, you know, our collective memory accelerates. We find also that who you remember has changed enormously as you change communication technologies. For instance, before, you know, the invention of printing, most of the people in the biographical records that we have are either political leaders or religious leaders. They're kings, emperors, and prophets. After printing press, you have a new elite. History is not reserved to, you know, the leaders of institutions anymore, but to this creative class that also includes artists and scientists. Then you have the introduction of, you know, film and radio, and you generate an elite of performers that did not exist before. So one of the things that I've been interested in is to understand how our ability to record and process information changes over long periods of time. Because uh, I do agree that GDP might have been growing only for the last 200 years or so, but you know, our ability to process information has been growing for longer periods of time, uh, even though it might have not been expressed in increases in GDP per capita. My guest today has been Cesar Hidalgo. Cesar, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Okay. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.